In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Rick Mercer spent years and years crisscrossing every part of Canada for his TV show, The Rick Mercer Report, going to every small-town festival, getting on a bobsled, doing something called The Train of Death, and sleeping over at the Prime Minister's house. So what do you learn when you do that kind of work? Rick will be here to tell you how the show made him ask the question, what does it mean to be Canadian? And in his new book, he thinks he has the answer. Rick Mercer, coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So today, you're going to hear my conversation with Rick Mercer about his new memoir. When I say new memoir, I actually mean his second one, because in his first memoir, Talking to Canadians, Rick talked about his early life growing up in Newfoundland and Labrador. By the way, I can't imagine someone from Newfoundland getting a job at the CBC. His early days in theater, striking gold as part of the founding cast for the satirical juggernaut that became This Hour is 22 Minutes, the most successful comedy show in Canadian history. And I remember at the end of that book, Rick leaves 22 Minutes and is trying to figure out what to do next. So in his new memoir, it's called The Road Years, Rick picks up where he left off, the creation of yet another Canadian comedy juggernaut show, The Rick Mercer Report. And in the book, Rick tells the story of how he and this small crew got on planes every single week to go all over Canada, to go to different communities, and to ask the question, what does it mean to be Canadian? Over the course of their travels, they had conversations with politicians like Stephen Harper and Jean Chrétien, musicians like Jan Arden and all of the members of Rush. And through the Mercer Report, Rick showed us the best of what Canada has to offer. It was funny. It was heartfelt. It was small town. It was big city. It was Canadian. And all of that is in his new book, The Road Years, which is out now. So what was it about doing this show that gave Rick imposter syndrome? How many times did he almost die while filming the Mercer Report? And which prime minister is the best at doing comedy? He joined me in studio to talk all about it. Here's my conversation with Rick Mercer. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for having me. Nice to have you here. It's great to be back. I was talking to you while you were writing this book. Do you remember that? You were saying, I got to go out to the shed and write my book. Yeah, that's where I, I would write the, the book. That's where I wrote the first book because it was a pandemic book. So I was locked down in my summer place in Newfoundland. But uh, it worked. So the second book I pretty much wrote in the shed as well. Why? Like, what's the, what's the difference in writing a second memoir as opposed to a first memoir? It was a little easier in some ways because if one of the takeaways writing the first memoir is I realized, much to my relief, that I wasn't a narcissist because I really didn't enjoy the subject matter. I, I would sit there and go, <laughs> I would rather be writing about any other person or inanimate object on the planet than me. So, but the second book isn't about me. It's about the people that I met. It's about the places that I went. It's about the adventures that I went on with an incredible crew. So it was much more enjoyable for me to write this book. 
I, I didn't know a lot of the stuff in this book, especially around the early days of the Rick Mercer Report. And that's kind of where the book starts. You, you know? were a child. I, I was, <laughs> You're not expected to remember. I, I, was, I was a glimmer in my mother's eye during yeah. when you were trying to come up with that. T- talk to me a little bit about that. I love the way you write about it. What, what, what was the origin? What was the idea you had when it became time after 22 to do the Rick Mercer Report? Well, I guess it was always in the back of my mind. My partner and I, Gerald Lunds, my creative partner and life partner, he... Both of us always had the idea that I would end up with my own show. Now, what, that's kind of the goal in show business quite often, if you're in comedy anyway. And I never really knew what that show would be. I knew I would bring certain things that I was allegedly good at, like the rant doing political commentary. But I didn't know what the show would be, whereas Gerald seemed to have a very clear idea. And he just kept saying, it's OK, you'll just be talking to people. And I'd be like, well, what kind of people? Well, people. We'll just send you out on the road. You're good at that. And I never really had an idea until we got on the road. And one of the first places we went, we went to a Callowit. And we didn't really know what we were doing. And we landed and there was an election going on. So I thought, I know how to do this. I'll cover an election. And then I realized elections in a Callowit are nothing like any election I had ever seen before. And I just ended up talking to regular folks and people reacted in a positive way. And then we never ran out of ideas after that. You, you to me, are a very confident person. Like, you know, when I sometimes- Did you say confident or competent? Believe me, just confident. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just confident. Yeah. But what you are to me, and, and, and you know, you and I have talked about this, and I'm not going to embarrass you any further, very meaningful to me in my broadcasting career. And, and you know, oftentimes I will think to myself, well, oh, geez, that guy would stare down Americans and ask them about Jean Poutine with, without a, a worry in his head. It was interesting to read in this book that when you were coming up with the Rick Mercer report, you write. I felt some imposter syndrome. For sure. I I don't know. I haven't read about imposter syndrome. I just heard about it. And then I thought, well, that's me. But I would think that everyone who's had any modicum of success would have to, especially in the arts, maybe, uh, would have to think maybe that applies to me a little bit. You felt like, is this, am I the right person to do this? Is this me? Well, you know, I guess if your job is to go in there and save this guy by cutting him open and fixing his heart, at the end <laughs> of the day, you have something real to say, oh, no, I'm good. Yeah. I'm very good. The Look, spleen came out? That guy is walking now because of me. <laughs> Whereas, of course, in show business, it's a little bit more nebulous. And... And also, it was just weighing on me so much because it was just going to be me. There was obviously going to be an entire team, but it was all going to rise and fall on what I said in those 23 minutes. And some of my favorite parts of this book are some of the stories that we we tell in this book and some of the stories that we get to read about in this book about you almost dying. Yeah. You almost, you know, you almost getting hurt in the pursuit of great Canadian television. Yeah, that happened by accident. It's something we called host in peril. (laughs) Uh, We, I can't. I can't remember how it happened. It, we didn't start out doing that, but any time I was in danger or in, uh, in, in great discomfort, the audience really seemed to enjoy it. So <laughs> then it became part of the act. And it was weird because I'm not an adrenaline junkie by any stretch. And I ended up jumping out of airplanes. I ended up entering demolition derbies. I ended up dangling off all sorts of things and doing the same to Jan Arden and, and entering. I talk about being in the train of death. And I, it's an event called The Train of Death, and it was the first time on the show I really thought I was going to die. Where was this? It was, it, it was in Ontario, and it's, it's, you get three cars, and you chain them together. And the first car has an engine. The second car 
has no engine, no brakes, and the third car has a brake, and you're racing around a racetrack. And I was in the last car, and I was whipping around, I was out of control, and I thought I was going to die. Walk me through this. I'm in the back car. Yes. My job is to... Brake when the train enters the corner. I lock it up. Yep. You lock it up. And, and that's it. Then you hold on for life. How do I get in? And then I thought, this is going to be a comedy death. And a comedy death is when... Someone will say, did you hear Rick Mercer died? And they'll go, oh, that's terrible. How? And they'll say, he was doing something called the train of death. And then, of course, they'll laugh because it's a comedy death. <laughs> like, of course he died. It was his own fault. What was he doing? Like, oh, the, cha- <laughs> the, the train, train of, of death. death. Yeah. What yeah. a shock. <laughs> Why? And, I, and, that, and that ended badly. So there was a bunch of those times. Completely out of control now. Can you tell the story about the bobsled? Is it in, what was that, in Rossland, BC? Rossland, British Columbia. Yeah. Yeah, they have a great winter carnival there. And uh, it's, I think, the longest running winter carnival in Canadian history, which is saying something. Like two world wars didn't interrupt this thing. And what they have always done is they have a main street that flows right down to the middle of the town on a hill. And they line the sides with hay bales and then the fire department opens the taps and they turn the main street into a sheet of ice and then they race homemade bobsleds down this thing oh my god what's the name of your team liquid courage liquid courage where'd you get that name oh that's what we got <laughs> i bet you do where did you get the sled oh we built her eh and i had bobsledded with canadian olympians and that's a terror onto itself bobsledding. But I just thought it'll be like that. Well, no, this was like a burnt out skidoo with a wooden seat. And the guy said, oh, there's a problem with the steering. And I said, what's the problem? And he said, it doesn't really work. (laughs) (laughs) And then I got on this thing and and it was was completely terrifying. Um, But we survived and moved on to another day. It's a great winter carnival. Some of my favorite stories in the book are about the people you met along the, along the way. There's a great, uh, a great chapter on various prime ministers, a great chapter on Justin Trudeau, great chapter on my, Stephen Harper, which is one of my favorite chapters, and a great chapter on the musicians you met along the way. Yeah. In particular, Rush. And I know that you as a kid growing up in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, in the 80s, Rush, very big band. You write about having to get to meet Getty Lee. Um, and you get to hang out with and have a few pints with Alex Lifeson and go yep. indoor skydiving with Alex Lifeson, which is very fun. It was Neil Peart, the drummer, the late drummer for Rush, that really caught me off guard. This is someone who didn't do a lot of interviews, no. someone who didn't didn't talk, and you got to spend a little bit of time with him. Yeah. Uh, Getty Lee came on the show first, and then Alex came on the show. And each of them, I said, any chance Neil would ever come on the show? And Getty said, uh, oh, you should talk to Alex. He'd love to do it. And Alex said, uh, it's difficult. And as you know, and this isn't telling tales, and Neil has passed away now. He had a very, well, he was a private person anyway, yep. and then he had a very tragic life. He lost his wife. He lost his daughter. Yep. Um, and he just didn't do interviews at all. And I knew this about him. And I was a huge fan as a kid. I, I took drumming lessons to sound like Neil Peart. Obviously, that didn't happen. And we asked him as a courtesy because we had had two members of Rush, but we knew he was going to say no. And out of the blue, he said yes. And then he was incredibly funny and charming and he went way out of his way to make it a great piece. Like he he brought the the Rush touring kit in from Los Angeles at his own expense to show it off on the show. And he gave me a drum lesson. I'm a kid who took drum lessons in grade eight to sound like Neil Peart and he's giving me a drum lesson. Okay, you're going to show me something? 
Yeah. Can count, I do it? Count me in. All my life I've waited for that. You ready for this? <laughs> I'm ready. I'm supposed to do that. It just doesn't. It's those moments. If you're not filled with gratitude and if you're not uh, overwhelmed with how lucky you are, yeah. you'd have to be completely dead inside, I think. Yeah, he told a bunch of drummer jokes, right? Yeah, he told yeah, drummer yeah, jokes. Yeah, yeah. And so I did the rim shots. And, <laughs> and yeah, he was, just, he was just a funny guy. Tell me some drummer jokes. Uh, well, for example, um, what did the drummer get on his IQ test? What? Drool. <laughs> Good. What do you call a drummer with half a brain? What? Gifted. <laughs> what does a drummer use for birth control? What? His personality. And all of those guys are great. And I think anyone who's ever interviewed members of Rush come away with that, that they probably haven't changed since grade yeah. 10. Funny, interesting nerds. Yeah. Funny, interesting, yeah. inside jokey nerds. Yeah, who yeah. probably really upset their parents because they decided <laughs> to start a band. <laughs> Uh, speaking of musicians who uh, you, you, you get a laugh out of and were able to kind of give us a laugh through, I want to play a clip. So, Jan, now here we are in front of the big mural. Yeah. But uh, now because you're Jan, mm -hmm. I think we're going to maybe try some illusion. We're just a couple of losers. Do you not like me on the date anymore? Are you trying to kill me? This won't fit me. I have a giant head. Giant, giant. No, really. See? Never mind. Go this way. See how big my Never go on a date that requires a helmet. <laughs> Can I also say I have a gigantic head? Good. I can't get a hat to fit me. You had the same thing? Oh, my goodness. Or a, or a helmet. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. That's your first interview slash first date with Jan Arden, someone who would become a really big part of your story, a big part sure. of the Mercer Report. How did, that, how did that whole thing happen? She became a regular on a show that didn't have regulars. Like, as a philosophy, we didn't have regulars. Uh, occasionally, not very often, we would be planning a shoot, and the shoot would die for whatever reason. And Die meaning it just didn't work like out. Like it didn't work out, yeah. or, or the items that were supposed to be there weren't in place. Yeah. And we landed in Calgary. I can't remember what it was we were shooting. And it was determined that whatever it was we were shooting the next day just wasn't going to happen. So we had to come up with something else. We had no net. And we thought, at the very least, I could explore Calgary. But I thought, I'm not going to show Calgary to Canada because I have no voice of authority. I, I need someone on the inside. And we made a short list, and Jan was on the list. But honestly, I didn't know her. I had never met her. I knew her music, and I knew it was really sad. Did you know she was funny? Not really. I, I knew... I was actually very worried about that. I thought <laughs> the, the person who writes those songs might be a bit of a downer. <laughs> but anyway, I called her up and I said, would you give me a tour of Calgary for the show? And then she agreed to do it. And the next day she shows up and she said, we're going to go to the zoo and we're going to go to Calgary Winter Park, I thought. And uh, yeah, I think that, that could fill the day. And I was like, this is going to be a disaster. You can't show up at a zoo <laughs> And say, we're shooting. You can't show up at Calgary Winter Park. We're shooting. These things take weeks of yeah. planning. Unless you're Jan Arden. Like, we went to the zoo. <laughs> and within minutes, we weren't in the zoo. We were in the, the hippo compound in the back, <laughs> shoveling food into the hippo's mouth. And we were in the elephant compound, being nuzzled by elephants. And it was all this backstage stuff. And then we went up to Canada Winter Park. And this guy was showing us the luge. And I just said, could we put Jan on the luge? And he was like, if she signs the waiver. Oh, good. It's always what you want to hear when you ask me if you can do and something. And so 
She signed the waiver. Yeah. She put on the spandex. Yeah. She was very funny. I put her on the luge. I kicked the back. It went down the mountain. Her screams reverberated off the hills. And I just thought, she's just going to be on the show an awful lot. Yeah. And that's what we started doing. She's, she's hilarious. She's hilarious. And I didn't know that. And she's saucy. Within yeah. minutes yeah. of the first interview, I was so relieved that this was going to work. And then I was also just counting in my head, can't put that on TV at eight, can't put that on TV at eight, can't, maybe I could beep that. And there's no control in her. She's like, you know, a wild horse or something. Hello, Jan. Hey, Rick. This is my town. Welcome. We're going to go on a date. This is so exciting for me because I, I did go on a date in 89, so I am, I'm so pumped. You're and, ready for date and, number two. Um, and I'm, I don't have my period. <laughs> Some of the parts of the book are also about some of the activism that you did, specifically around the Spread the Net campaign where, you know, you, you, the effort to buy mosquito nets to send Africa to prevent mosquito-borne illnesses. And reading this book, uh, as your book as I did, and I also read um, you quoted – and did you read that new book that you're in about underground Newfoundland music in the 1980s and 70s? Yes, I've read a version of it. Yeah, yeah. My, yeah. Mike Heffernan, it's called, I have it here. It's called Let It All Fall, Underground Music and the Culture of Rebellion – in Newfoundland. Right. Great book, by the way. Great I think book so. To understand sort of the, for people who don't know, Rick's, you know, Rick's generation was really formative in Newfoundland and Labrador for starting this thing called Peace Accord, which was this a- annual festival of a kind of punk rock and, and heavy music and social justice activism. I grew up going to Peace Accord, really, really important for me and the work I ended up doing, you know, talking to Good Charlotte, but I, <laughs> talking yeah. to Brent Buss, <laughs> but what I, what, I, what I learned was that this is, a, this is not something new for you, the idea of trying to infuse something good into your work, something sort of like whether it spread the net or even back then with Peace Accord? Uh, I guess so. I was reluctant to bring spread the net onto the TV show because ultimately, first and foremost, I wanted a show that celebrated Canada and I wanted it to be funny. But in our office, there was always, if any writer said we should do this because it's important, they would just be ridiculed. Oh, important. We're going to be important now, Mm -hmm. are we? Yeah. And we wanted to avoid that. And Spread the Net just happened. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Uh, we challenged schools across the country to raise money for to purchase anti-malaria bed nets for Africa. We had a great slogan, 10 bucks buys a net, saves a life. And the response was overwhelming. And year after year after year, it was overwhelming. Millions of dollars w- was raised. And it was all the kids that did the the heavy lifting. And every year, there was always some incredibly powerful story on the ground here in Canada. Like one year, the school that raised the absolute most money of any school in Canada by a long shot was a high school in Fort McMurray in the same calendar year where those students were evacuated from their, their homes and had to leave Fort McMurray because of the wildfires. They missed half the calendar year. They came back after that disruption in their life, and went out and raised like $45,000 for kids in Africa. Yeah. It, it, was, it was incredible. But why? Well, you said it was one of the most important things that ever happened to me. Why? Well, because I've just found it incredibly personally satisfying making the show, those shows. Uh, I always felt great about the country when I came back because I'd be completely discombobulated, but I just spent four or five days in four or five different parts of the country with all of these students who are doing something incredibly yeah. selfless. And I always loved the finished product, and I believed in the cause, and I loved that interaction with an audience. Yeah, and you got to see people across Canada 
give something of themselves all sure. across the country, no matter where they were. Entirely selfless, and you'd be interviewing students in 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 Peterborough at a school, and then someone would say, "That girl over there, she gave her entire paycheck." And like, how amazing a moment is that? Uh, a young high school girl working her butt off at Red Lobster, giving two hundred bucks for a presentation like that after seeing the film or whatever. It's just, it was amazing. One of the things at the uh, end of the book, when you get to it, is you talk a little bit about the decision to leave. There's a lot of national news story when you decided to leave the Rick Mercer report. I don't got to remind you. Right. (laughs) It was people like me peppering you with questions. Right, right. Um, Did writing this book give you a greater idea of why it was time to go? And did writing this book make you reflect on what your life's been like afterwards? Um. I didn't, I haven't regretted leaving the show. Obviously, I was worried that I would. And my life changed dramatically because when people talk about work-life balance, I really didn't have that for 15 years. But it's okay because I loved my work and I was working with my partner. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't like ignoring someone at home. There were no small children at home or Mm -hmm. anything. Um, So I was very happy. But it was all work. And then, of course, that work went away. So obviously, my life changed dramatically. But I didn't have a chance to uh, really think about it or feel sorry about for myself about it because suddenly the entire country was in the same boat. You couldn't fly and neither could any of us. Exactly. Right, right. So yeah. it wasn't like I was going, well, this is terrible. I haven't been to Vancouver in weeks. Yeah. Well, no one could go anywhere. So it was just the way it was. And I wouldn't have been able to continue on with the show anyway. I got mailed during the pandemic from people saying, it's so weird to watch your show in reruns. We're nine minutes in and you've hugged 13 people and shaken hands with <laughs> you know, 80 people and you're all jammed in a car. It's yeah. so weird. So we couldn't have carried on anyway. But I like my life. I like the writing. I really like the writing. Yeah. And now I've completely run out of runway in terms of a memoir. Like the book basically ends here with you and me in the studio. So <laughs> there's nothing else. So I have to come up with something else to write for the next book. Coming up, more from Rick Mercer. We talk about his new book, The Road Years. And I ask him, did writing this book give him a better answer as to why he left the Mercer Report? The answer's coming up after this on Q. Hey, I'm Candice Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. We are the hosts of ICYMI, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And we want to help you make sense of the need-to-know internet stories of the week. Consider us your internet historians of past, present, and future. Of the good, the bad, and the truly unhinged. From nuanced takes on stories we're all closely following to the ones you wished you heard about. In case you missed it, that's ICYMI, the podcast that's extremely online, so you don't have to be. Follow and listen now. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q, and you're in the middle of my conversation with the Canadian comedian Rick Mercer. Rick spent years as one of the anchors of the groundbreaking Canadian satirical news show, This Hour is 22 Minutes, before starting his own show, The Rick Mercer Report, where he traveled the country meeting and telling the stories of everyday Canadians. Rick just released a memoir. It's called The Road Years, and it's all about the moments and the memories and the strange amount of near-death experiences that make up his 15-season run at The Mercer Report. 
So before we took a break there, Rick and I were reflecting on his decision to leave the show in 2018. This is something he writes about a fair bit in the book. And he might kill me for saying this, but I could tell he was getting a bit wistful about it. Because here's the thing. I've known Rick for a long time. He's kind of a hero of mine. And he's funny. And he's supportive. And he's given great advice and great insight over the years. Wistfulness is not something I've experienced a lot from him. So I wanted to know what's what's going on here. Did writing this memoir get him reflecting a little bit on the impact that he made? Yeah, absolutely. And when I was in the middle of it, like I was more shocked than anyone when I realized, wow, we did this for 15 years. Like I never, I'm not a reflective person. No, that's what I mean. You're not a reflective person. But when you write a book, you're forced to reflect on things you've learned and, you know, what your takeaway is. And... So yeah, I'm I'm really proud of what we did and I'm I'm really proud of the number of people that we put on TV and we celebrated and we made look good and I love it. Well, I have your favorite by the way at the end of this interview, which is a quiz. <sighs> Didn't I say, Tom? You did. I said I'm going to Can we not have a I quiz? Talk, talking to you, I said I got a quiz for you at the end and you said to quote, no quiz. <laughs> <laughs> no quiz. And yet here we are. Anyway, Tom, it's been great. <laughs> I've enjoyed my time here. <laughs> Ready? Okay. Least enjoyable activity you did over the years. Well, see, I can't say that <laughs> because that would make someone feel bad. No, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a. It'll be whoever. It said, could be. It could be the drive from somewhere to somewhere. It doesn't have to be a thing that ended up on camera. Okay, all the times I was intentionally made cold, which now is a thing, of course. People are constantly plunging themselves in ice baths. But I would have to do that on a regular basis as host in peril, and I hate it every single time. Favorite prime minister to do a sketch with? Well, that would be Kretchen, because it's like working with Eugene Levy. Like, his timing is impeccable. So that has nothing to do with his politics. He's funny? He's funny. Oh, my God, yes. He, and he could tell a joke like nobody's business. He used to get laughs in English when he didn't speak English as a parliamentarian. Uh, favorite moment that didn't make it to air? Uh, most moments that were good made it to air. There were times when people said things, especially politicians, that would have destroyed them. And we never put it on the air because we weren't a gotcha show. But in the back of my mind, I'd always think, wow, if we put that on the air, I could ruin their lives. You'll be out of cabinet on Tuesday <laughs> and you'll be killed if you ever go to Cape Breton. <laughs> but I'm just going to not put it on the air. How about that? I hope you have it stored in a tape in your basement no, somewhere. No, you at any that. moment, you none can just take that. them out. Ready for the last one? Yeah. Thing you most miss about doing the show? I uh, miss the, the crowd that I worked with. I know that may seem, seem a little cliche, but they become a family mm -hmm. for a lot of years, and I miss the travel. I really do. I'm just starting to travel again now. Uh, part of me wrote this book to go on a book tour. Uh, I miss that. I got to travel the country in a way very few people do, and and I'm sad that that's gone. Rick, I love the um, I love the book. Thank I love, you. I love talking to you. Thanks for being here, and congrats on the book. Thank you very much. My conversation with Rick Mercer, his new memoir, The Road Years, is out now.
All right, that's it for this episode of Q. Uh, thank you so much to Rick Mercer for coming on. Um, Rick, as you as you might be able to tell from my accent, is a very important person where I'm from in Newfoundland and Labrador, so it was nice to get a chance. He's one of these uh, Canadians that um, I'll say I can't really believe I'm friends with. Like, I, I regularly, whenever I get a text from him, I'm always like, wow, Rick Mercer. Good job, T-Bone. <laughs> so I... <laughs> I promise I'll never call myself T-Bone again. Uh, the other episode we put up today is Mike is uh, Talia Schlanger's conversation. Not my conversation at all. I was off sick uh, with the pop artist talk. I have been getting so many texts and Instagram DMs about this guy that he's like the next big thing in Canadian pop music. And when you listen to it, they might be right. He'll be here to talk a little bit about opening for Shania Twain, about his debut album. Um, and go check that out wherever you got this podcast. Okay, we'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.